Hey, everybody, how's it going? It's Chase. It's time for another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show. It's Wednesday. That means a new episode drops. Uh, anyway, it's my job to welcome you here to another episode of the show. You're on Creative Live. This show, you know, it's where I sit down with the world's top, most awesome people, top creators, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and I do everything I can to unpack their brains for you. And I would be lying if I didn't say it was for me, too. I get a lot of juice from these conversations, uh, and today's uh, show is no exception. My guest is Jeff Goins. And right now, if you don't know who Jeff is, I want you to pay close attention because he just dropped the book called... Real artists don't starve. And if that has anything to do with you and your desires, your journey, you're going to want to pay attention. Um, he is, I think this is his fifth book. Um, ones before this, actually the one that caught my eye the most before this that I had previously digested is The Art of Work, which talks about how we find the things that we're supposed to be doing in this world. But where real artists don't starve goes is exactly where you think it would go. Um, it helps us understand the value of our work as creators and as entrepreneurs. And w one of the things I love is Jeff's own story is really well embedded in this book about how, you know, he really never thought of himself as a writer. He wandered in the wilderness. You know, he was in bands. And at some point he realized that, wait a minute, what I need to do in order to be a writer is call myself a writer and start writing. So, you know, I, which is so relevant, I think, you know, as I've talked to hundreds of people here on the couch with me or in chairs and, um, Everyone has this. It's like an imposter syndrome. And one day, Jeff just shifted gears and he became a writer. And now this book does such a good job of helping us understand the value that we have in the world. Um, we do go back in Jeff's uh, history and unpack some of his curiosity, his intuition towards finding his calling. There's no school for this. The method is to experience things in the world and experiment and then look inside and find out what's true to you and keep pulling on that thread. There's no such thing as a solitary genius. Another concept to go into in our conversation here. There, I think there's a, a belief that great creators, they go away in a cave and they make something and they come out. This is totally fundamentally not true. And, and it's also, I think, a belief that great artists are just sort of discovered and then you know away they go. Uh, in this conversation, not only do we blow up the concept of, that great artists are sort of solitary, we show that, or Jeff shows rather, that the best artists of our time were plugged in into a community. So you heard me talk about the other 50% in other videos. We touch on that here. And, and going back to that, transforming how artists prior to, for, for example, Michelangelo, um, Jeff's book has a lot of research around how Michelangelo completely reframed artists prior to his time were basically hourly wage workers. And Michelangelo transformed what it was like to be an artist in his contemporary time by reframing the level of importance of art and culture. And, you know, to understand that and to understand how that plays a really important part in the work that you're doing right now as a creator, or as an entrepreneur, it was so interesting and fascinating. And Jeff does a really good job of explaining that. So I'm going to, there, there's, I could give you another half a dozen bullet points that I've got here in my notes, but instead of doing that, I'm just going to cut right to the show today. So with that, let's get into the show, but quick word from our sponsor before we do. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best 
of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits, and today Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. I'm happy you're here. Glad to be here. Long time coming, too, right? The book's been out for a little bit. A little like, bit, yeah. A few like months, yeah. Two, three months, something mm -hmm. like that. And I will confess, this, I don't know if this is like disclosure thing, but I got an advanced copy. We have a lot of uh, the same friends, Jeremy Cowart. Um, Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, mm -hmm. of course. A lot of folks have been on the show. So I got to see this thing early and... A, congratulations. Thanks. Does it feel good? You feel like you like you had a thing inside of you and now you've gotten it out? Yeah, I mean, it's always good to like finish something because you know there's so many things in life that I haven't finished. Uh, <laughs> no so feeling. I think part of why I finish books is so that I can start the next one. Yeah. But there's also sort of a grieving process for me that goes into finishing something. Like, I think this is my best book yet. I'm super proud of it. Uh, you know, I open it up after it's done and I read something and go, hey, that's not half bad. Uh, <laughs> but there's still sort of a grieving process where I have to like let go of all the things that this book will never be. Yeah, that is the thing about choice, right? When you yeah. choose something, you're sort of turning your back. But as you will probably, you, you did contemplate it a little bit, if I'm not mistaken, that it's, it's like shipping and doing and making that actually is the... Um, or at least not the pillar, but one of the pillars that you contemplate in the book. But before we go into Real Letters, Starve. Sorry, Real Letters, Don't Starve. <laughs> what I'd like to, like, let's go a little bit back. Your journey. Yeah. Because you yourself became a writer at yep. some point, mm -hmm. And you yourself decided that you weren't about to starve. So mm -hmm. let's hear a little bit about your personal journey on the way to writing the book that we'll get into in just a second. Well, I would not be a writer, an entrepreneur. I, I teach classes for writers online too, so I kind of write books and then I teach courses for writers and bloggers. And uh, I wouldn't be doing any of this if I didn't first become a dad. Really? Yeah. The dad, was, was it because you wanted to spend time and have freedom of like, uh, like schedule or what was the? It's because I didn't make enough money to support my wife who wanted to stay home and be a mom for a little while. So um, yeah, I mean, I was never one of those people who like from the age of five said, I'm gonna be a writer, uh -huh. but it was always this thing like in the back of my mind. And there's this guy named Parker Palmer who's an author and activist and he says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. 
And so I, I, I was, uh, so I, I went to college. I had a very practical double major in Spanish and religion. Uh, and then I did the next logical step after that, and I joined a band and toured the country for a year. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All these things are perfectly logical. You can see how yeah. I'm stacking success <laughs> oh, after it. success. Yep. I was just, you know, chasing what I was curious about, and we had this tour in Taiwan. We were real big in Taiwan. Oh, you made hundreds, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we played this um, nursing school one time for like, like 1,200. It was like a, a pre-nursing school thing, and... Uh, it was an all-girls school. All these girls were in uniforms. It was like 1,200 uh, Taiwanese young women, and like they went nuts for us. <laughs> I, rem I remember. I'm serious. Like I was, I was playing. I was playing electric guitar, and I like you know started to solo or something. And and there was this balcony of girls up top, and I like pointed to one, like winked at her, <laughs> and she fainted. No. And at, at the end of the show, they rushed the stage like you know, Elvis or the Beatles or something. We had to crawl out the back window. This is amazing. It was incredible. I mean, it was Jared really Leto has been on the show and he has, no, no one's fainted on Leto. Yeah, come on, Jeff, Jared. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> amazing. And then we went back to the U.S., you know, playing for, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, high school assemblies with kids rolling their eyes, you know, asking us to play Nickelback or something. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I did that. And then eventually I got a job. After that, I moved to Nashville to chase a girl. Mm-hmm. And um, she became my wife. And Successful chase, it sounds I, like. Yeah, I realized at some point I needed a real job. And so I, I worked as a telemarketer for about seven months. And then I got a job as a marketing director for a nonprofit. Okay. I didn't know anything about marketing. I was a, I was a writer. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I knew how to write. And uh, I didn't think of myself as a writer. But this guy, the executive director of the organization, uh, he hired me um, after, because I emailed him. I emailed him and like, five other people, and I emailed him because he had a blog, and I read his blog, and I thought, this is cool what you guys are yeah. doing. Um, uh, you know, I'd love to be a part of it. And he said, oh, let me see your resume. I sent him my resume, he said, oh, you're a writer. And I said, I am? <laughs> and I had like, like, you know when you're like 23, and you put every insignificant opportunity on yeah. your resume just to go, hey, I did this. Yeah. And one of those things that I did, I was a writing tutor in college, just as a way to make some money. Uh -huh. I'd always been good at English. Anyway, so I, I, I did this job for a while. I read Seth Godin's blog every day, which was like a you know, first-class education yeah. in marketing. Incredible. And um, about five, six years into it, I was in my late 20s going, is this, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? I didn't hate my job, which I actually think is a really good place to be. Yeah. If you hate your job, if it's unbearable, you have to leave. But I was in a worse place, I think, where I was comfortable. Yeah. And I was anticipating a midlife crisis. Like, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't <laughs> midlife, but I was going... I know. I've seen this story play out. Yeah, like, I knew I couldn't screw this up, yeah. really. Um, so I wasn't going to get fired. I probably wasn't going to get laid off. I was getting a raise and getting more responsibility every year. And so I said, do I want to do this for the next 10 years? Is this who I am? And that's where that Parker Palmer quote came in. So I started listening to my life. I started going to conferences, seminars, um, reading books, just trying to better unpack me. Uh -huh. And as I like went back, I went to some conference about finding your dream. And uh, they like made you draw out a line, like a timeline of your life. And they said, plot out the most significant experiences of your life. Just whatever comes to mind. And like one of them immediately came to mind was in sixth grade, I won the school spelling bee. And I beat an eighth grader and made him cry, which is wow. the only time I ever made an eighth grader <laughs> cry. <laughs> made some people faint, but this is the only time you made somebody cry. Yeah, I mean, I was this like super chubby, long-haired, grunge music listening uh, insecure kid and like this is one never played sports this is like one thing that I was good at and so I just you know held on to it 
And you know, when I was playing music, my favorite part was writing songs. And when I toured with the band, um, my like the best part of my week was not playing shows for sometimes thousands of people, sometimes dozens. Yeah. Uh, it was every Saturday I had to write a blog post detailing what we had done uh, that day. Wow! And I remember when we came to San Francisco and we rented some bikes and uh, rode all the way out to the Mere Woods, and I you know I wrote about that. And so I looked back on like the past like twenty years of my life, and I realized. My life is telling me that I'm supposed to be a writer. And so I started the blog uh, and um, just started writing. It was just a place to practice. And um, then my wife got pregnant, which she doesn't like me saying it because it sounds like, you know, some, it, like it wasn't a joint venture. <laughs> but like, yeah, truth yeah. is, we got pregnant sooner yeah. than we thought we were going to. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, oh, I'm going to be a dad. And I kept hearing about blogging and making money. I mean, this is 2011. Yep. Uh, and so I was like, well, I, I got to figure this out. And I told her, I said, I'm going to find a way to make some money off of this. And she looked at me and she was like, okay. Because throughout my 20s, I just yeah. had like unfinished idea after unfinished idea. And this was one idea that I actually finished. I think embedded in that, that two or three minutes, there is so many things that yeah. I need to unpack. Because, you know, uh, you're familiar with the show. One of the things that we talk, well, there's many topics that we talk about that you touched on there. One of in particular is this ability to, like, there is no school or there is no method for sort of finding out who you are. Right. And to me, that's the thing that is so misdirected these days. It's, it's people, they'll chase some false ambition, the ambition, ambition that their parents have, mm -hmm. your, or cultural, for me it was cultural. Like, mm -hmm. if you were gonna be successful, then you were, you know, a pro athlete, a doctor, a like, these are right. just like the sure thing, the bets, you just go, mm -hmm. if you can do this, you go do it. And Yet there is no, there's no actual way to unpack the things that you're supposed to be. So when you talked about listening to yourself, mm -hmm. was it the act of putting those things on the timeline? Was it the, like, the messages that were around you? Was it time that you spent walking in the woods meditating? Like what was, what, or is it all those things? Like help, the, let's get tactical for a second because to me this is the hurdle that 50% of the people who are listening or watching struggle with yeah I mean I, I, I actually don't think like uh, you can or should just go do whatever you want to do like um, in the art of work I talk about like your sort of sweet spot and there's lots of people that have different sort of versions of this is where like what you love and what you're good at and what people actually want or need from you where yeah. all those things intersect yeah. um, and and so for me I was like well I don't just want to taste what I'm passionate about and, and that's a personal value. Yeah. Like I know some people can just like draw or write or paint or take photographs all day long and be satisfied with that. But I really wanted to, knew, to know that what I was doing was resonating with somebody else. Yeah. And so I was like trying to find that out. Like what am I actually good at? Yeah. And I, I wasn't sure. I was getting praise for something. So there was demand for something that I didn't love doing, which was my job. Uh -huh. I didn't hate it, but yeah. I didn't love doing it. And I knew I could probably hide there for 10, 15 years, but at some point yeah. it was all gonna boil over. So what listening to my life looked like, it meant talking, and I still do this today. I do it about every quarter. Uh, my friends will get emails from me and they'll go, here we go again. Oh, one of, like, these, I, one of these emails from Jeff. Yeah, like I, don't have a, like I don't have a midlife or quarter life crisis. I have like a quarterly crisis where I go, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I feel like a fake again. And it's a good little, you know, um, exercise, but I, um, you know, reached out to a bunch of friends. I said, what am I good at? Like, what do I do that 
adds value to you, you know, like what do you see in me that I'm missing? Uh, I, like I said, I went to conferences. I love reading. I, yeah. I read a bunch of books. That book by Parker Palmer is called Let Your Life Speak. It's a fantastic book about vocation yeah. and, and just kind of finding the right kind of work for you. Um, and then like there was a little bit of serendipity. You know, there's a little bit of woo-woo wonkiness yeah. where um, I went to a conference and this guy said, who here doesn't know what their dream is? And like 60% of the room, including me, raised their yeah. hands. This is why I'm asking the question. Right? And I was like, oh, I'm not alone, right? Yeah. I felt great. And then he said, I think you're lying. I think you do know what your dream is and you're just afraid to admit it. So I just want you to write down the first thing that comes to mind. And I was like, okay, I open up my notebook and I go, go-kart racer. Writer. You, know, you did, you literally wrote. I wrote writer, writer. yeah. And like I said, for me, it mm -hmm. was just in there. Yep. And it wasn't something that I ever thought was possible. I thought writers don't make any money. I thought they starve. Yeah. Uh, and this had been baked into my mind my whole life. But I was like, writer, this is what I, this is what I wanna do. Stephen Pressfield talks about shadow careers, yep. which I love. We do these things and we're good at them, but they're really a shadow of the true thing. Um, and so I wrote that down and I bring it home to my wife and we've been married you know, a few years at this point. I, I, like, I like, look. I paid $200 to go to this seminar. I, I discovered what my purpose is. I'm a writer, look, it says writer. And she goes, are you kidding me? I've been telling you that for years. And, you're, and, and you have to go to a conference or somebody to tell you that? <laughs> pay, $200. <laughs> pay me $200, I'll tell you what you are. <laughs> yeah, she was mad because yeah. she's like, I've been telling you that. And I think some uh, truths about ourselves yeah. are hard to recognize until other people affirm and reaffirm them. Yeah. A, few years, uh, a few months later, I had joined a person, uh, like a, a group coaching program. We yep. call it like a mastermind today. Yep. And it was something I paid to be a part of as a group of, I think about 11 people. Yep. And we met for a year and my boss actually paid for me to do this. Was one of, I had a great boss. Yeah. He bought books for me, he would send me to conferences and would pay for coaching for me. He was really, we're, we're friends even today. Uh, he really wanted to invest in me. So I did this thing um, and like the second meeting, we're like two months in, one of the other participants, not the coach, yeah. but one of the other participants asked me what my dream was. I said, I, I don't really have a dream. And he said, really? Because I would have thought your dream was to be a writer. And I was like, and as soon as he said that, that hit me. Because yeah. again, I'm trying to hide from this yep. thing and other people are seeing it yep. on me. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I guess I'd like to be a writer someday, but that'll probably never happen. He said, Jeff, you are a writer. You just need to write. And the next day, I had this blog that was just sort of sitting there and I wasn't doing anything with. The next day, I got up at about 5 a.m. and I wrote a blog post. And then I did it again the next day and the next day. And I did it for the, every day for the next year. And by the end of that year, uh, I had tens of thousands of readers and you know, all kinds of hard work in between. Yep. But that, that moment set into motion a daily discipline that, you know, every day I got up feeling like a fake and a fraud, but I was like, at least I like did it. At least yeah. I'm, I'm starting to move this thing forward. And then we got pregnant a little bit after that. And I'm like, maybe I can find a way to make some money. And all these things started to happen. And it just, it felt like the right thing. This, there's, it's so many things that are consistent. A, the fact that 60% of the people yeah. don't know what your dream are, but you really do. Mm. Um, and was it the act of being at this? And again, I think this is super tactical and really, really valuable for people listening. So I want to be methodical how we go through this. Was it the act of going to a seminar and having the like find your life stream as the core principle that got you to say that thing, 
or was it some other thing, or was it the combination? Is that what you're getting at? You just that's the listening part. Your your friends are saying it. You're asking them what you're good at. You're there's actively trying to understand what you should be doing. I think it's all the things. Somebody yeah. asked me uh, a while back uh, when we launched The Art of Work, sold a bunch of copies, and somebody said, what was the one thing you did to turn this into a best-selling book? And I said, the one thing we did was lots of things. Yeah. And I, I, I think if I could go back 10 years and, and give myself one skill yeah. that I have more of now than I did then, it would be self-awareness. I think so many people, particularly in the vocational space, yeah. think they're good at something that they're not good at. Uh, and you can have all the passion in the world. And I, like, we can get good at things that we're not good at. Yeah. I, I don't have a fixed mindset about that. Yeah. Uh, but like, if you're not aware that like this is not good, that yeah. you're on American <laughs> Idol and you're singing off key, yeah. you're not aware of that, I mean, yeah. that's, that's a bad deal. And so the best thing that we can get, and this is really ingrained in me with my job that I worked at for seven years, is feedback. Yeah. How am I doing at this? You know, before we started the show, you were asking me, how are we doing here? Yeah. Like that is that is the number one thing that I see with successful people yeah. that they do better than most people. They're constantly learning and they are aware of their weaknesses yeah. and either okay with them because they're going, well, I, I don't do that, I do this. Yeah. But on the things that they do well, they're constantly trying to improve those things. Yeah, you referenced the concept of things that you're passionate about, things you do well, things that other people pay for or recognize yeah. in you. Uh, I, I usually give a shout out to Chris Gillibo. Yeah. Um, who's so talented. What was his book called? Born for This? I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I always confuse that with Gaga's Born This Way and it's not Lady Gaga. It's Chris Gillibeau, Born for This. Uh, but that, born, that born to Run. Yeah. Born this, great. yeah it's bon Jovi, is that right? Uh, uh, the Boss. There you go. Uh, hey, come on. I was right. I sang it at a wedding on Saturday night. <laughs> um, so this overlapping Venn diagram and I think awareness, self-awareness, yeah. um, is key. But the, what I have found and tell me if this is true or not, that that is an active process. That yeah. that doesn't just uh-huh. sort of happen. That you have to sit down, not one day, not three days, ten days, but pretty regularly, and say before you have the answer, what is my overlapping thing that mm-hmm. I love, that I can see myself doing, and that people get paid to do, and that I'm, I have some aptitude. Yeah. Do you find it intentional? You have to be intentional about that more Absol- often. Than absolutely. Not? Yeah. yeah. I mean. Here's the thing, like the, one of the reasons my wife is so frustrated is because for years I sat on our, co- our couch in our studio apartment and, and, and I had my laptop and I worked from home and I would see all these blogs become, like these bloggers become authors, become you know, full-time writers and I wanted to do that, I was envious about it. Yeah. And, and I would go, I'm better than them. And she was like, do something about it, you know, yeah. write a book. And I would, I would start my little projects. I you know, had eight different blogs that all failed because I, wouldn't stick with them. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think envy can be a really good thing. I was just going to go there. Yeah, because like, it, it it's bad when I, when I see what you're doing, I go, that looks cool. I, I wish I could do that. Meh, whatever. You know, like, that's, a, that's a sickness. Yeah. When we look at what other people are doing yep. and we want the things that they have without asking the question, what did they do to get those things? Yeah. What did they do to get to where they're at? And eventually I just got so frustrated and that's when I started doing all this stuff. I was like, yeah. I'm tired of not even knowing what to do. So I'm going to go, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be where these people are at the conferences, at the coffee yeah. shops, do everything I can to just be around this scene to try to get some of this on me. Yeah. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to actually believe that I don't know how to do this and uh, be willing to uh, do what it takes to get where I'm supposed to be. Because I can't get where you are. 
because I'm not you, yeah. but, I, but I can, like you do on this show, I can look at what you're doing and what Chris did and what so-and-so did over there and, and I can go, wait, there's like- There's a pattern here. There, is, yeah. there are some of yeah. the same things yeah. that all these people who are at a certain level have all done and I bet I can extrapolate from that and glean something for my own journey. So true. And I think one of the other, like, there's a, um, an exercise besides being intentional with like doing the exercise of what am I good at? What do I care about? That, and that is curiosity. Yeah. And Jason mm-hmm. Silva, I don't know if you know Jason, mm-hmm. yeah. author, host of a couple of television shows, amazing guy. He's been in this, you know, been been on the show. He talks about curiosity. And I think is that what was going on when you were like, I'm going to go to this seminar? Was it curiosity? Were you exploring, or was it more concrete than that? Yeah, I mean, I was so insecure, you know, and I think a lot of us are. Um, we want to know, do, do I have what it takes? Yeah. Um, in, in the book, Real Artists Don't Starve, I tell the story of John Grisham, and I love this story because he didn't start out going, I'm going to be a writer. He was a lawyer, and yeah. he was a new dad. Yeah. And he goes, you know, what? you know what, I think I might be able to do that. So what am I going to do? Am I going to quit my job? Am I going to abandon my family or... <laughs> put myself and them in financial dire straits. No, I'm gonna get up a little bit early every day. I'm gonna write one page. He did this for two years and uh, wrote a book. Published the book with some you know, small press. Uh, it, it didn't do well, but he said, hey, that was fun. I'm gonna do it again. Did it you know, for another year, published a second book. And while he was doing that, he bought like a thousand copies of the first book and started marketing it himself. It started to kind of pick up, sold the next book to a publisher. It was called The Firm. It was a mega bestseller. (laughs) And then he became, then he He quit. He became an overnight success. And um, he didn't know, like, I think we want to know. Yeah. And um, one of the things I like to say is clarity comes with action. So we're all waiting for clarity before we act. That's beautiful. And we we act our way into clarity. That is so sharp and it's so concise. Clarity comes with action. Yeah. So is it fair to say then that the act of um, doing the work, is that what created the book, The Art of Work? Yeah, that, in, that in, in book. It, like, conceptually, because you know, I'm, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to pull on your, sure. your th- the thread yeah, of yeah. your arc right here. Yeah, I mean I love, like I don't write about things that I'm an expert at but I also don't write about things that I don't have firsthand experience with. Yeah. So I write about something that I had an experience with. Art of Work is about me kind of finding my calling. That's how I understand it. Um, and going, what can I learn from this? And so that book, I wrote like, like these seven steps for how to find your life's purpose and it felt very flat to me. I mean, I felt very self-helpy and I didn't like that. And so I sort of set that aside and I just started talking to people. I started calling people, I actually talked to Chris Gilbo, and I said, how do you find all these amazing stories for your books? He says, well, I don't talk to the people that, like, I'll send an email or something or put something on social, and everybody will send their own stories. He goes, but that's not where the really good stuff comes from. The really good stuff comes from somebody suggesting somebody else's story, because there's no mixed motives yeah, there. Right. And I started, I talked to one family who uprooted their, their entire family uh, and moved to Burundi one of the poorest countries in the world to start a coffee farm. And I was like, how did you do that? And they're like, oh, you know, we took a leap. And I kind of unpacked that some more. And I said, how long did that leap take? They said, it took 10 years. I was like, that's a really long leap. <laughs> like, wow. But that's that John Grisham story, right? Yeah. And some, sometimes the way we talk about what we've done 
the way we tell our stories or, or even culture, the way culture tells stories, it's not really what happened. And so I did, I, like I started digging into these stories of other people and then I, I started to see these commonalities yeah. and I was like, this is, this is how I found my life's work. It's not a science, it's not this, 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 and this, but there is a pattern, you know? And yep. so art is not just like throwing paint against the wall. There are patterns, there is intentionality, there is, it is a practice, but at the same time, it's not, you know, completely, um, you know, boxed in. Yeah. So, uh, the, to me, this is a great. I, I'm I'm dying to get in the book here. Sure. I'm gonna just yeah. give the like the for the folks that are not listening that are watching. I'm holding the book up right now. It's beautiful. Real artists don't starve. Um, timeless strategies for thriving in the new creative age. And I'm gonna open our discussion on this book with Michelangelo. Yeah. And. As you open the book, roughly, I think that's the very beginning. Yeah, that's right. right? Mm -hmm. That's the very beginning. Um, and set the stage for us on on the. He's obviously the master. Painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. um, but why don't you unpack the first chapter for us? Because I think it it is a great path for us to then start to walk down around the book that I think is totally completely loaded with gems. So. Open the book for us. So, um, uh, most people believe, I guess the myth, we'll just talk about the myth. Yeah, so the, the thing that I hear a lot, I hear it from photographers, I live in Nashville, uh, and so there's a lot of photographers, a lot of musicians, a lot of writers, and a lot of like now like budding entrepreneurs. And the one thing that I hear amongst all these people is, I can't do that because there's no money in that. And that could be art, it could be writing, it could be photography, it could be music, it could even be your business idea. Yep. Like, being a starving artist is this idea that um, the thing that you're most passionate about, other people don't value. So you're gonna have to go get a job, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I kept hearing this. And at the same time, I kept meeting people who were killing it, people that you and I both know, and yep. also like random people that aren't famous or celebrities or yep. anything. We yep. all know people that are just, they're killing it. Yeah. And they're not, and they're not super famous, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're happy, they're making a great living, and they're doing the thing that they love. It is possible. Yeah. And, um, and so I was like, how do I, like this is the, this thing that had been bugging me for years. And um, then I came across a story about Michelangelo, which I had never heard before. Yeah. And so the story is in 2003, this American art uh, historian who was living in Florence, Italy, uh, discovered this uh, incredible thing. Yeah, and what he was doing was he was uh, he was trying to date the different scenes of the Sistine Chapel because they had a rough idea of when Michelangelo painted them, but he painted them over the course of years uh, with kind of these you know, fits and starts, and he wanted to know, okay, when was that painted, right? Mm -hmm. It's a huge ceiling. And Michelangelo was an avid letter writer, so he goes to the letters, and he's trying to find something out, and there's some reference to a commission, and he goes, you couldn't really find any dates in, in the letters that match certain scenes, and so he's like, but I bet I could go to the bank records. If yeah. I could find his bank records, he received his commissions and installments. I could attach this installment to that date, to that piece, was the idea. Um, so he goes to the bank records. He had a friend at the archives. He looked up the letter M. He said it was that easy. <laughs> and- uh, Let's see here, uh, Michael, Michael, uh, Michael Jones, Michael, yeah. Michelangelo. There oh, he is, there he is. <laughs> and, um, and he found bank records with the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars in there. And it sort of surprised him. And he forgets about the letters and he starts 
just researching this. And he finds some unfinished research about Michelangelo's wealth. And long story short, he ends up uncovering a fortune worth over $50 million. And it made Michelangelo the richest artist of the Renaissance. But not only that, he, at his time, was the richest artist who had ever lived. And I spoke with an, uh, a biographer of Michelangelo, a guy named uh, Bill Wallace, William Wallace. Yeah. Uh, and he is you know, one of the leading experts on the life of Michelangelo right now. And he said what Michelangelo did was he set a precedent that many artists for generations after followed. He made it possible for an artist in the Renaissance to be wealthy. Before that, they were basically manual laborers. They yeah. were like blue collar shopkeepers. Yeah. And afterwards, they were aristocrats. And he changed everything. And so when I read that story, I was like, here's a guy, as you said, the master, top of his game, arguably one of the best artists ever. Yeah. And he was rich. And look, this is not an, like, this doesn't mean you have to be rich. At all. It means you don't have to starve. But I think he represents, uh, like, he's, He's top of his game and he didn't starve. So he is the best at his craft and he's not a sellout. And so he's not starving, he's not a sellout. What is he? I, I think he's a thriving artist. Yeah, that and and to just pull a little bit more out of the book and give them to the reader or the listener or watcher here, it's like that's, you do a nice job of contrasting throughout the book, the starving artist versus the thriving artist. I think the nomenclature is really healthy. Um, to, my personal journey along that same story has to do with I went. I studied philosophy, yeah. and in particular the philosophy of art, and mm. that it, it wasn't presented in such a um, tight way that sure. you did, but th it was made clear to us that that Michelangelo was a game changer because yeah. he had transitioned out of what people thought was a an like an hourly wage rate yeah. for things like commissions. And <clears throat> that that was impactful for me because wait a minute, you're like if you're the belief was people that in that age were just like working for um, pennies, but if there's commissions involved, then they had a benefactor, and if these artists that have captured our hearts for you know centuries they had benefactors, then what's so bad about me trying to make a living? Right. And it was that story, which one of the things that I really bonded with your book over mm -hmm. was, wait a minute, it was, a, it was a similar lever, like yeah. it's actually okay to make money as an artist. Yeah. Um, so you, you, there's so many great stories, and I think before we started rolling the cameras, you're talking about working on your art of storytelling and how mm -hmm. storytelling and research came together in this book in a really yeah. nice way. Um, <clears throat> Why don't you, like, the next step in realizing that Michelangelo was paid and was a master and that we don't have to starve, what was the jump between that and, and the rest of the book? Build that, build that lineage for us. Yeah, so um, I, I write books to answer questions that I have and, and that I think other people have too. So I wrote The Art of Work because um, a friend of mine, uh, when I quit my job, he goes, what's happened to you is rare. So, you know, going back to the story of, uh, becoming a dad, then having a blog, and like trying to go, okay, how can I make money off of this? I mean, basically in about six months, um, I replaced my income, I replaced my wife's income, and then we tripled her household income, and she quit her job right at the very end of her extended maternity leave. And I didn't even know, like, she's the finance person in our family, and I had all this money sitting in our uh, PayPal account, and I opened it up and I go, oh, we're okay. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I guess I should transfer this to our... 
uh, you know, bank account. And it was, it was, it was a crazy thing. And a friend of mine, right before I quit my job, where again, I was asking for some feedback. Should I quit my job? Is this, is this crazy? Should I not do it? He goes, what's happened to you is rare and you should consider that this is your calling. And so the thing, I, I love that. I mean, I quit my job and I was like, this is a big deal. This isn't just yeah. something that happened. But I thought, what if it wasn't rare? What if it didn't have to be rare? And, and so that's why I wrote The Art of Work. And the same thing with, with this, where people go, oh, you were lucky. And nobody who's worked hard likes to be called lucky. Yeah, and it's annoying as shit. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, and look, like fortunate things happen sure, to me. Of course. I totally recognize that. Born white, relatively privileged yeah, in, in America. Yeah. yeah, of course, there's Absolutely. so much of that. We, we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, for sure. Um, but like, like I said, I kept meeting two groups of people, Man. equally talented, yeah. uh, but one had kind of a business mindset and the other didn't. You know, and they were both really talented, but one was starving, the other was thriving. And so this thing bugged me. And I read the Michelangelo story years ago. I clipped it in Evernote and I just let it sit there. And this is kind of how books happen for me. They just sort of, I have lots of conversations with people and it just won't leave me alone. And, um, and I kept collecting stories. And I went back to Michelangelo because all I had was this article about yeah. this, this guy. And uh, I was like, what if I could find this guy? He's eight, some, you know, probably 80 years old, retired, living in Florence. And um, I, I, tried, I tried to email him, it didn't work. Uh, the email didn't work, I couldn't find a phone number. I mean, he was like off the grid. He's an 80 year old Italian man. He, he's an 80 year old American got, living oh, in okay, Italy, okay. but he's lived there for like yeah. 40 years. Uh, and, and so I went to Twitter and I just searched his name in Twitter and I found some students from like 2014 who had taken pictures of him teaching a seminar. And I just, I, I, direct, I followed one of those people, I direct messaged them, I said, I wanna, I wanna get a hold of this guy. And they said, okay, yeah. No problem. He's and they connected me and we were talking on Skype the next day. And I mean, he just, like he told me um, all kinds of crazy stuff about Michelangelo. And so I started reading about his life and, and I got connected with Bill Wallace, the biographer, and I realized everything that we think an artist should be, he was not. For the last 40 years of his life, he had hundreds of employees helping him build this cathedral. Uh, he got millions of dollars uh, per commission. He, he earned 10 times uh, what his peers did just because he asked for it. I mean, everything he did was just yeah. bizarre. And I thought, what if he's an archetype for you know other people like this? And so um, I just kind of, like I started talking to people, I started finding story after story after story of creatives who were thriving and I realized this is, this is the new norm. Yep. And in the book I call it the new renaissance. So if Michelangelo kind of started a new thing uh, with you know, his example where other people could follow, what if we could do that again? Yeah. And, and what happened in between Michelangelo and today is this story of the starving artist that has uh, sort of infected our understanding of art and creativity. And just like you said, you read this story about Michelangelo and it surprises you, it surprised me. Yep. It surprises us because culturally, we still think that artists should starve. And the argument of the book is you don't have to thrive, but whether you, you th or you don't have to starve, but whether you thrive or starve is ultimately a choice. That the, the concept of a starving artist, just one more little piece of history, and I think you, you uh, document this in the book, yeah. is from Paris around, yeah. around La Bohème, yeah. the bohemian yeah. lifestyle. And uh, w is it just, uh, I don't remember the details, but it was just that 
um, wasn't it glorified like you're struggling so much for your art or something like that, and that's what made it worth worth the struggle? Is it for people who were telling themselves that <laughs> they were um, still worthy, but they weren't really put in all the real work to be a successful artist? Or what what was the context there? Yeah. Like um, in, in a sense, the question is, where does this horrible myth yeah. that so many of us have lived and fought through and so many who are listening right now right. are going, oh my God, that's me. Yeah. So where did that come from and how can we like, how can we put it down? So I call the story of, of a starving artist a myth, not because it's untrue, mm-hmm. but because myths are stories that we tell ourselves that help us make sense of our reality, right? So every Christmas morning, presents appear under the table, uh, under the uh, Christmas tree magically. So parents tell a myth about Santa Claus, right? And there are uh, religious myths, there are political myths, there are historical myths that help us understand our reality. They can be true based on truth or not, but when you believe a myth, it affects the way you understand reality in in the universe and your life. And so what happens is this guy named Henri Merger in the mid 19th century, uh, is uh, his dad's like a janitor and his mom's like a seamstress. And he wants to be a writer and he's surrounded by, I mean, this is the 1850s. So Impressionism, I mean, lots of really yeah. cool stuff, stuff happening in Paris uh, in, in, uh, at the time. And he's surrounded by creative geniuses and he wants to be one of them. And so he, he tries to you know, write some stuff and it doesn't really go so well for him. And a little bit of literary success, no commercial success. And he's frustrated about it. So what he writes is these series of short stories um, that basically become eventually the opera La Boheme and Rent and these other things mm-hmm. afterwards, uh, Moulin Rouge, are yep. all kind of based on this, this story of these artists who are struggling, living in poverty, and, they, and, and the poverty makes the art better, sort of the message. Yeah. He is telling himself a story. We all do this. He is telling himself a story to help him make sense of the reality around him. And, you know, what is that... that um, Fable, the fox and the grapes. Fox tries to get the grapes, can't get the grapes, tries to get the grapes, can't get the grapes, goes, I don't want the grapes anyway. That's the starving artist story. Yeah. And if we try something and we don't succeed at it, we go, well, that's not real art anyway. And he's a sellout because he's making a bunch of money. It's a way to sort of um, soothe ourselves. And so all I wanted to do with this book was tell the other side of the story. It is equally true, perhaps even more true today. Uh, but we have to be willing to part with some deeply held beliefs beliefs yep. based on the stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, one of my favorite uh, people is a guy named Thomas Merton who is a Trappist monk. And he says, um, he talks about the, the, the false self and the true self. And he said, uh, the worst kind of illusions are the ones that we believe about ourselves. And those are the hardest to let go. Trappist monk, they got it all figured out, don't they? <laughs> beer making monks. That's right. We just had some more <laughs> beer making monks around. Um, I'm going to open the book here in just a sec. Before I do, I think you also talked earlier about one of the sad. I think I don't remember what exactly the framework, but it was. I think you said it was one of the saddest things that uh, was it was like unfulfilled potential, or do you remember what you were working at there? It was like if you find if you have your calling but you don't pursue it. It was a thread you just started to go down and then you changed gears on me. And I'm, um, yeah, I'm, there? What, what? Uh, I mean, I think one of the, the, the saddest things, I don't know if this yeah. is what I was talking about or not, but um, is um, the unlived life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the idea that um, 
I maybe can, it's I, the fox and the grapes thing. Like you're writing off these things so easily, or I don't remember. Yeah, but I mean, I like we all kind of like a lot of us sit on the couch and go, I wonder what that would be like, and and we never try it, we never pursue it for, you know, millions of of reasons. Yeah. And uh, I realized um, that um, the the thing that I was most afraid of when I started going down this this path of you know being a full time writer was not failure. Uh, it was actually success at the wrong thing. Like I'm a pretty ambitious guy. I'm yeah. the oldest of four kids. So I'm like, I got that elder brother. I got to yeah. go out and succeed mentality. Yep. So uh, almost everything that I do, I do pretty well. Yep. Um, so I don't really have any fear that I'm going to be broke in a ditch somewhere. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe that could happen, but I just like, I'm going to find a way. So when I, you know, was sort of looking at, you know, these, the, the fork in the road, yeah. uh, what is it? Mark Twain says, or I think it's Mark Twain, when you see a fork in the road, tw- take it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just the idea, uh, like, do something. Yeah. Uh, and some of us get stuck there. And so when I was looking at, you know, sort of these different paths, I was like, well, I can stay on this path of least resistance and, you know, be rushing towards middle age going, is this what I thought it would be? Uh, or I can dramatically kind of reinvent myself. The book I call it The Rule of Recreation, just yeah. like um, John Grisham did. It's never yeah. too late to go, this isn't, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't who I am. I'm going to recreate it, you know, this life of mine, and, and just go down this path. And it may not work, yeah. but at least I'll have tried. I think the, the, your cajoling right there helped me latch onto it. And, okay. and it was the... the when things are okay, yeah, and, and there are so many people, um, I felt like for me everything was okay, but I was listening to culture and society and the parents and all right. these different sort of external pressures that we have. And for, I think for so many people, having basically become a really good career counselor from t- you know being a reasonably public person and, yeah. and chasing my own dreams and be like, oh yeah. shit, how'd you do that? That's incredible, cool. Yeah. And what I hear is so much of the, well, I got it pretty good. Right. Like, but when the thing that's getting you up in the morning is your insurance deductible is slightly lower, or, be, or it's like, it's the, the things that are just so beige by almost any ma- measure mm-hmm. that you're, and if that's the sort of justification for staying the course that is societally acceptable or publicly acceptable, it's like being in a relationship that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, how, if you were going to give some, you know, because I think you're pretty prescriptive in the book. Yeah. What is the, what is the, um, well, what is the prescription? You know, I think one one of the, like an idea that I really like, and, and it's 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 a thing that um, is sort of a philosophy that um, I share with some mutual friends and acquaintances that we have, people like Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, mm-hmm. is um, the idea of apprenticeship. Yeah. I think it's a lost art. And in the book I talk about, I actually talk about in both of the books we've been talking about, um, and and I think it's so important. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, recently about this job that I worked for about six and a half years. Yeah. And um, where everything was fine. Everything was fine, and, and I said, you know, what's crazy about that job is not a day goes by uh, today where I don't use a skill that I learned there. So I, I mean, like there were times where I didn't like my job. There were times where I was really frustrated, felt misunderstood. You know, it was I was in my early to mid twenties for most of that job, and my boss would just throw stuff at me. Yeah, like he hired me as a writer when I didn't think of myself as a writer. Uh, a year and a half into that job, he goes, "Oh, by the way, you're the marketing director now." Like literally, that was what he said. And I said, "Oh, I am." 
We didn't have a marketing director. He was the marketing director. Um, how do I do that? Well, read Seth Godin's blog. And so I had to figure that out. And I really consider that season my apprenticeship. Yeah. And um, I was recently talking to a, 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 a creative group at, at this um, uh, company. And I said, the one thing that I see really successful people doing in various creative fields is they always act like an apprentice. So what does an apprentice do? Michelangelo did this actually really well. They do whatever is required of them. And we don't live in a culture where I go, Chase, I, need, I, want, I want you to mentor me. I want, you to, to, uh, I want to apprentice under you. Yeah. Uh, like that's a weird thing and you're busy. Uh, <laughs> but like, we don't like, where is it? Conceptually though, you can do it remotely, digitally, from you can devour all the things that a person puts out. You can, as you say in the book, put yourself around other people who are doing this thing and yep. you're sort of apprenticing by osmosis or... Yep. Yeah, so like like that's stacked against us is it's just hard, whereas Michelangelo goes to, uh, you know, this the, the most fashionable painter in Florence at the time and says, I want to be your apprentice. And he basically says, okay, join, you know, the other work. boys, yep. Yep. you know, uh, cleaning my shop. Uh, so it was like a, kind of baked into the economy, whereas now you really got to fight to make these things happen, which is why most people don't. I think um, you can't skip this. Like, I think you have to act like an apprentice. And I think you're right. It does start with like uh, watching this show, uh, reading blogs and books yep. and stuff. Uh, but everybody that I know, and I don't know this about you, but I would guess that it's true. Everybody that I know that has some semblance of influence is pouring into the next generation, as it were, yeah. a handful of people. Um, and the way that those people, those apprentices, got those influencers' attention was not by saying, will you mentor me? The way they did it was by they started devouring everything mm -hmm. that you do, yep. and then they reported back and said, I did this stuff. You already helped me. Thank you. And, and in the book, I, I, like, I lay it out because you talked about being practical. I yeah. think one of the best things that you could ever do to try to get a little bit closer to somebody that's a hero, a mentor of yours, is to email them and just and not ask for anything. Do work. And say, <laughs> hey, Chase, I love this show with Austin Kleon. Uh, when you guys talked about Sealing Like an Artist, it made me realize, you know, with my photography, uh, I was trying to be original and I was just like, you know, wasting my time and now I'm devouring all this stuff. I have you and Austin to thank for that. Uh, thanks so much. Is, you know, and, and maybe you could work an ask in there that says, um, is there anything else I should be looking at right now? Yeah. I'm guessing like the probability that you, you responding to that on Twitter, email, whatever, just multiplied by 100. And if you do this again and again, and again, with say a dozen people, yep. I promise you, one or two of them yeah. are gonna go, this guy, this, this girl, they're for real, yep. and, and I'm gonna start investing more and more time. And I've been fortunate to be apprenticed by some great people, some great minds, yeah. uh, and it was not because I asked them for one favor and they said yes, it was because I kept showing up saying, I've already done the million things that you've talked about in your books, on your, blo you know, on your yep. blog, wherever you know, you're sharing your influence. And that's how you prove yourself worthy of, of somebody investing in Doing you. the work, the actual work. Yeah, and, and reporting back yeah. and, and showing it. Saying it, it works. Here, yeah. I did this. You told me to do this. I, you said jump. I said, oh, hi. I jumped and look at yeah. where I landed. This is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And the people, I think, in, in the book, well, I was, I'm going to get a little tactical. I'll open the book here in a second. But that's, I think, you, you talk about putting yourself in, this, in the place, or I don't remember what, what you called it. Like, the scene. Go to the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I call that the other 50%, which is 50% is the making and the sharing. And then if you just make and share, but you sit in your parents' basement 
Like it's going to be very hard for you yeah. to connect with other people. So for me, the other 50% is going to what you call this is the scene. So why don't you, um, and I think for the, it's a part of the mentee or being involved in the mentorship relationship is sort of participating and you have to either digitally or physically go there and meet these people. Mm -hmm. So break down, like, what do you mean by like, be a part of the scene? Yeah. So the book is like 12 rules of the new Renaissance, I call them. And these are rules and I, like artists don't like rules, but <laughs> I mean, a rule is if you do it, like things typically work out for you. And if you don't, you're sort of rolling the dice. Right, So we have rules for our son, who's five right now, because he needs structure to understand that life has consequences. Mm -hmm. And one of the consequences of not following these rules is like you might continue to starve. And so these were things that I observed that um, historically and then also contemporarily, contemporary artists uh, um, were doing yeah. and, and it led to their success. And they're doing lots of other things, but these are the 12 things that I saw most thriving artists do. Yep. And they're also the 12 things that starving artists actively did not do. They said, I don't need to do that. I don't need to market my work. It can stand on its own. And one of those things, and it's challenging, but I think it's possible, is what I call the rule of the scene, which is um, you gotta show up and be a part of what, whatever's going on in, in your industry. And I think every city has a scene. Yep. I think every industry has a scene. Uh, you know, but I, I have a friend who moved here recently, moved to San Francisco, where we are right now, um, from San Diego. Like, San Diego's a cool city. Yep. But he realized, like, there was some stuff happening here that he wanted to be around, and he was single, and he had some flexibility to make that happen. Uh, so he just, you know, showed up, and then things are working much better for him. Yeah. And so the idea is... Uh, you've got to move. And the first movement is probably across the room, not across the country. Yeah. For me, living in Nashville, like I said, I sat on the couch for five years and I was like, I don't live in New York. I don't live in San, San Francisco. I just live in Nashville. I moved here for a girl. I work from my home. I could never be a part of that stuff. And then I said, well, wait a second. Like there are some things happening here. We have meetups. Uh, you know, I, I, I just noticed because I would like uh, e-stock people, you know, uh -huh. oh, uh, you know, like they're all hanging out at that coffee shop. What if I just went and worked at that coffee shop? And a couple of things happen when you join the scene. One, you do get to be around sometimes some of your heroes yep, and maybe nice. even develop a relationship. I think the much more realistic and even better thing is you get to be around all the other people who are kind of where you're at that want to be a part of that scene. And I think one of the best things that we all can do is find other people that want to be where we are and are like, actually doing yeah, the work, doing the they work. want it, yeah. and, and link up with them, hang out, uh, promote their work. I, I, I texted a friend of mine, I was like, remember when we started our blogs six years ago, and I would text you every time I had a blog post and ask you to go to Reddit and upvote it, and I would do the same thing for you. And like, he's like, yeah, I remember that, that was ridiculous, <laughs> you were ridiculous. Uh, but I mean, like, that's what we yeah. did, you know, we were there to support each other, and it's a lonely place when you're getting started, reinventing yourself, yeah. recreating yourself. And so going to a scene, uh, which, which is like a physical place where you can connect with other like-minded people, getting encouragement, getting correction, I, I think it is essential to success. Yeah, dialogue, it's like feedback. Yeah. You talked about feedback and awareness, and yeah. this is one of the ways that we can create that for ourselves and yeah. for our community. Mm -hmm. And I think you, may, you underscored something that's really important, is that it happens in every city, and if it doesn't, then you can start it. Yeah, and, join one or create one. Yeah, and that and the it maybe is meetups, and there mm -hmm. are trade shows, and every you could be the group who quilts only in purple fabric on Tuesdays yeah. in May. 
And there's a there's a club for that on the internet. Yeah. And so, like, finding your tribe. Um, we could go down a big Seth Godin hall there, but I won't. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the, the joining a scene is a really prudent thing. You talked about the 12 rules, and you've got them into a couple of buckets here. I'm just going to throw out a couple others, and we cool. can talk about yeah. a little preview. I think it's really well organized. Fun. Um, well, you already hinted at Austin Kleon. Um, mm -hmm. Stop trying to be original is yeah. the name of one of the chapters. So, a little tribute to him, but also to the millennia. Like it's yeah. art is very much about reconstituting ideas, right? Yeah. So, talk to me about how you presented that in the book. Um, so, there's a historian by the name of Will Durant. He says nothing is new except arrangement. Uh, I love that. I mean, here's a historian, right? Like saying. There's nothing new under the sun. Even that idea, even his quote is, is hailing back to a biblical quote from Ecclesiastes. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's fascinating how much this sort of plays out in a variety of fields. Jim Henson, incredible pioneer of- The Muppets. Yeah. Puppetry, The Muppets, The Dark Crystal, Sesame Street. Um, I read several biographies about him. He's probably one of my favorite uh, yeah. creatives because he was- he, he was such a pure artist, and yet he used the business to make his art. And w the way he started was um, he was you know doing commercials for a, a coffee company called Wilkins Coffee, and, and they were like 10-second commercials. You can still YouTube them. They're oh, bizarre. Wow. They're black and white. They're two puppets, and, and it's Wilkins and Wilkins, and Wilkins says, you know, do you like coffee? And Wilkins says no, and he like blows his head off with a <laughs> cannonball. <laughs> Buy Wilkins coffee. Um, but what Jim was doing, and what he eventually did, was revolutionary. And and yet, when he received some lifetime achievement award for uh, puppetry, he said uh, he 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 prompted this guy named uh, Bert Hillstrom, who was basically the first person to put pup puppets on television. And he said Bert Hillstrom did more for bringing puppets on the TV than I ever did. And so here's this guy whom we will remember for probably hundreds of years who has created an incredible legacy. And he goes, all I did was what this guy did, but I just did it a little bit differently. And, and Jim was actually, when he was doing those commercials, uh, he was a senior in college uh, making the equivalent of $750,000 a year, another starving artist thing. Yeah. And he was like, he was bored. He wanted to go be a painter because he didn't think he was being a real artist. And so he took a six-week sabbatical. He and his, his girlfriend, Jane, uh, were running this business together. He left it, the business to her. He goes to Europe for six weeks, so basically backpacks. And what he sees in Europe is puppet shows where adults and kids are going together. Whereas in America at the time, that didn't really happen. Yeah. He's like, what if we could do this? What if we could steal this and rearrange it Mm -hmm. uh, and share it, you know, in America. And that's exactly what he did. So nothing is new except arrangement. We're just, we're copying what people are doing. We're curating it. And then we're resharing it, you know, in it's our It's the concept of the remix. You know, Picasso. Yeah, the remix. Everything is a remix. Yeah, that's right. P Picasso talks about this a lot, that he's the, the real, real artist to steal. Yep. Um, so I think that's a fascinating chapter. We've talked about Austin a little bit. Yeah. We already right. touched on Apprentice. How, how about don't work for free. This is like, the, this is the hardest chapter for me to write. Because cool. um, being an apprentice, right, is like you're, you're, you're doing work for free. And so the idea here is not that like when you get started, you may not do something to sort of build your portfolio, um, but like you don't need to do that for years. And I meet lots of creatives 
uh, makers, photographers, writers who literally, you know, for five years are working for free in hopes of like catching a break. And if you set a precedent that you work for free, I mean, you're basically saying that your work is is worthless. Yeah. And 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 this was something that I saw was pretty common amongst the. I mean, they did this survey with hundreds of working creatives, and all of the, those that were thriving. I mean, they did not do work for free. Yeah. Maybe every once in a while they would donate a project for philanthropy, yep. uh, but this idea that you're discounting your rates or you're doing lots of stuff for free to... Um, to break in. Well, for, yeah. to lead to some opportunity, yeah. it, it, it doesn't work. And so the counterpoint to that is always work for something. Opportunity doesn't pay the bills. And, and when we do stuff for free, and I did this for years, um, we think it's going to lead to something, but we aren't quite sure why, why we're doing it. Yeah. Speaking is this way, um, where lots of people want you to come to their conferences and speak for free. And I do that sparingly, either because I want to help a friend, uh, or because I, I know that if I speak for this particular event, it's going to you know validate or legitimize me in this industry, and I can you know take this and leverage it somewhere else. So like that's worth something. Yeah. I remember when I first started speaking, um, I, um, I I couldn't get any gigs, and so I started doing gigs for free, and 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 somebody said don't do that, and I was like, well, what should I do? They said charge something, something. Yeah. I said okay, well I guess maybe like two hundred fifty dollars. They said yeah, and so the next time I was going to do a speaking, somebody called me and said, why don't you speak at our conference? I said well, uh, well, you know, what's your budget? They said well, it's, you know, like it's free. We'll cover your travel, and, and I said well, I really can't do it for you know less than two hundred fifty bucks. And they're like, oh yeah, we could do that. And I was like, wait, like you said it was zero, yeah. you know? And I realized there was room to sort of negotiate. And then other times, uh, you know, I would speak for free in exchange for all the video and audio that I could put on my website. And that yeah. was worth something to yeah. me. Yeah. So it can be whatever value you want to get out of it, but get something out of it. You're spending hours, you're often using materials. Don't do it just because it's going to lead to some opportunity and you don't know what that is. It's going to lead to nothing. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna keep. I, I'm I'm loving this little exercise yeah, here. I can fun. keep shooting you. Uh, oh, thank you for signing this book for me, by the way. Yeah. My galley copy wasn't signed. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't send that. <laughs> so, collaborate with others. Is this a little bit like the scene, like an extension of the scene? Yeah. So there's it's, like three chapters they're right next to each other. Yeah. There's the sort of like I a remember. trilogy, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and I had to break them apart. Uh, but it's one idea, which is like when you get around people that are like-minded, cool stuff happens, and and there's no such thing as a solitary genius. And so the first idea is you have to join a scene. Like you got to go where people are. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which is a super fun name to say, yep. uh, he wrote the authoritative book on creativity called Creativity. And in that book, he says one of the best ways to uh, be more creative is to not will yourself to do it, but to go someplace where creativity is already happening. So that's the idea of joining a scene. And then when you join a scene, you're going to basically build a network that you can then leave that scene. So when Hemingway moves to Paris to become a writer, joining the expatriate community that live there, uh, you know he leaves after about eight years, and he has that network that makes him the famous author he is today. Um, that he kind of carries around with him for the rest of his life. And so, you know, you go someplace, you connect with people, but then ultimately the network leads to some sort of collaboration. And so this is the idea of a mastermind group. It's the idea of doing partnerships, connecting with other people, working on stuff together. Because yep. when you collaborate, it's it's better. Yeah. And my favorite story about that is how J.R. Tolkien wrote 
The Lord of the Rings. And the story is Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and about 17 other men met weekly in Oxford uh, every Tuesday night. Uh, and they would get together and they would read something that they were working on. And um, Tolkien and Lewis became friends because they were the first two people, they were both professors at Oxford, that um, like they had ever shared their work with. And so they were very shy about, because they're professors teaching yeah. literature, but they were also like writing poems and stuff. And, and they're like, oh, you do this too? And they, and they started sharing it. And eventually they started this mastermind group called the Inklings. And um, Tolkien started, he worked on The Hobbit. It, it was successful. And then he had a contract to work on The Lord of the Rings. And one day he and Lewis uh, go out to lunch and uh, Lewis asks Tolkien, how's it going? And Tolkien says, it's horrible. I'm stuck. I'm a few chapters in. I haven't written in months. I think I'm going to quit. And uh, he lets his friend read the manuscript. And Lewis says, oh, Tolkien, don't you know that hobbits are only interesting uh, when they're placed in un-hobbit-like circumstances? And this is a light bulb for Tolkien. He goes, oh, yeah, they've got to leave the Shire. And if you've read The Lord of the Rings or seen the movie, like there's <laughs> the chapters, the first few chapters, first 30 minutes of the movie, they're just like watching fireworks. They're in the Shire. You know, it's sort of like tension is building. Yeah. But he stuck there because he, he was such uh, a perfectionist. He was kind of a nerd about the languages and the history. He needed the voice of a friend saying, you can do better. Uh, a, a friend of mine who's um, a researcher on the, the lives of the Inklings, uh, her name's Diana Glyer, she calls these people resonators. We all need resonators in our lives, uh, like that friend was for me, where he goes, oh, Jeff, you are a writer. Yeah. I am? You know, sometimes we're just the last people to recognize the gifts that we have, and community uh, creates that kind of resonance that helps us understand what our best work is, and also also helps us understand when we're falling short. Uh, um, Lewis was telling Tolkien, this is not your best work. You can do better. And and what happened was he ended up writing The Lord of the Rings, one of the most successful books of all time. He did it by bringing it, not by being a solitary genius, and the man was a genius. He did it by bringing his works in progress every single week, sharing it with his friends and getting feedback. And that is the only way that you can do great work. Amazing. There are, uh, is another thread that I need to pull on. You've touched on a couple okay. times. I've been trying to put, there's so many good ideas coming here. I'm trying to put pins in these things. Uh -huh. uh, that's my job. That's why I'm here. Um, and I learned this um, from Sir Richard Branson. And you, you, you've mentioned it a couple times here. It's that there's a belief, and you haven't really gone there, so I want to yeah. ask you to go there. That yeah. There's a belief that you have to bet it all. Mm. Yeah. And to me, I think you cite some research in the book, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and when I sit here and I'm thinking, as I'm listening to you, about the takeaways from the people who are listening and watching right now, and I know there's some way too big percentage of people who are defining how their problem is X and Y, and they've got a family and a mortgage, and I, you know, I can't do it because of all these things. And what would you tell those people? I would say, don't take a leap, build a bridge. It's sort of my tweetable version of, of that. <laughs> um, and I believed this for years. So when I, you know, going back to the John Grisham story, you know, he does this for basically three, four years before he goes full time. Yeah, reminder, that's the, lead, he was a lawyer and then wrote the books and the, yeah. Yeah, um, and that was sort of my story too. Um, so I started the blog, I basically built the audience to about 10,000 subscribers. 
while I'm doing that, uh, my wife gets pregnant. Uh, then I start like, like, maybe I can make some money off of this. And so then I like do a survey and, you know, l- uh, launch an ebook and then launch a course and, and then publish a book. And, and basically it takes two years. And I replaced my income. And like I said, we had basically a year, year and then some of runway. And I was like, okay, I guess I could do this. Like it wasn't a big, you know, leap of faith. Yeah, you didn't mortgage the house and, yeah, and go I, all in on your freelance writing career and just put your feet up. Yeah, and, and like part of that was because I had responsibilities and I couldn't do that. Part of that was I knew my wife would kick my butt if I, <laughs> I tried to do that. Yeah. Um, and it was also just the wisdom of seeing people do this. Yes. Like I had had a friend who had worked for 10 years at a corporate job. He hated it and he quit his job to be a writer and six months later he was broke. Yeah. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to look back. Like, I don't want to do this for a year and then go have to find a job again because they will have replaced me and then I'll have to go somewhere else. And I, like, I am a writer, therefore I want to spend the next 20, 30, 40 years, the rest of my life writing. So I've got to really, like, I'll, I'll wait. Like, I'll, I'll take my time uh, and just do this in the margins, practice in the margins for a couple of years until it's obvious to me and everybody else that this is the next step. So uh, in the book, so I just always had that idea, yeah. but I would hear people say crazy stuff like, take a leap, man. And, and like I said, I think sometimes we sort of sanitize our stories. Yeah. Like that couple that I talked to who quit their jobs and moved to Africa. And I was like, how long did that take? That, they called it a leap. Yeah. It took 10 years. They didn't move to Burundi. <laughs> they first good. moved to South Africa and they did nonprofit development work there to understand the culture. And then when that kind of like, after 10 years of doing that, they were like, oh, I think we really want to get into coffee. Let's go to Burundi. And, and then, I mean, that was still a yeah. big deal, yeah. right? Um, but it took 10 years. And I think most success stories, when you really get down to it, they're slower than we realize they yeah. are. People say, you just came out of nowhere. How good does that feel? Ugh. You know, yeah. oh yeah, I did just come out of nowhere. I'm special. It makes me feel special. But when in reality, like this took eight years, yeah because I had all these blogs that had failed and I tried to do these businesses that didn't work and I applied for these different jobs that got turned down, but, but everything was sort of building to this moment and I was okay with it taking time. Yeah. And not long ago, I ran across this study from the University of Wisconsin, which is a very fascinating study. They studied the trajectory of, I think, 5,000 American entrepreneurs for 15 years and they split tested it basically. And, and half of them that they looked at um, basically quit their jobs to go become business owners. And then the other uh, half um, you know, built a bridge. They, they didn't quit their job yet. They started a business, kept their job, and, and you know, eventually quit their jobs. Transitioned, yeah. Uh, the ones who uh, quit their jobs to go all in were 33% more likely to fail. They just, so like, can you take a leap and the net will appear? Yeah. Maybe, sometimes. Is the safer option to just take your time and build a bridge and try to, like I wanna be creating for a lifetime. Yeah. I wanna make a body of work, not just do one thing because I'm pissed about the job that I have. So I'm willing to be a little bit more patient about it. And it's frustrating, yep. but, I, but I see this and maybe you see this too, the people who well, you know, the people have been doing what I've been doing uh, for even the past five years that are still doing it now. I mean, there's like, like the, all those people that I was hanging out with that, are, that have still been doing it for the past five years. I mean, there's like a couple of them. 
and, and, and the ones who have endured are the ones who were patient, yeah. who didn't just quit their jobs and start something and, and hope it worked out. And the ones who failed were, were those who were riskier. And so I do think it's it's sort of a, a misunderstanding in our culture that you got to take some big risk. Well, even uh, the, the point that I made with Branson is, and to me why it's remarkable is not because uh, of Richard, but because of someone who has Richard's success and who you believe went all in. And he, he told you he didn't do that? He's like, it, his, his way was mitigate the downside. Like, just, you know, we'll talk about Virgin America for a second. So it's a, it's a Virgin company, they licensed the name, he was one of the major investors, and he found a way to get it so that if the airline didn't work, that uh, either Airbus or Boeing would buy, I think it was Airbus, would buy the planes back from him mm-hmm. at near full price. Mm-hmm. Like he pre-negotiated all that. And cool. you think like, oh my God, that's not being optimistic, you're planning for failure. It's like, no, that's actually how you transition out of being involved in so many other things and picking up this new thing. Yeah. Like, how do we reduce, you know, people say, I have a house, I have a mortgage, I have a, well, yeah, but have you gone to the people that you're closest to and told them that this is just not this thing, but you have a real sort of an existential crisis where you need to be doing something else for a living because you're not happy and there's nothing worse than success but without fulfillment. This is borrowing from Tony Robbins. Yeah. Like, that's, the, that's the catastrophic part. That's sort of yes. like the beige job with the beige life and yeah. the... And, how can we then transition? And if you include other people in the journey and you work with what you have rather than what you don't have, and what you have is people who love you, you have a roof over your house, so you have a 60-hour-a-week job, how can you make it into a 32-hour-a-week job? Well, what are you doing with your five to nine, not just the nine to five? And I find by and large that there's a, you know, you, you, you mentioned the stories, the myths that we tell ourselves that this is impossible once you have a, a mortgage or an X or a Y or a Z, that it's impossible. I think you've done a nice job of, the research was really interesting to me. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, I didn't, I hadn't heard that either. I thought yeah. it was fascinating. And I mean, that was like, we hear that if you want to be an entrepreneur, yep. uh, you got to take a risk. You got to go all in. And the most successful people that I know are not pessimists, but they always understand the downside. Yeah. The only time that I ever like really leapt uh, was um, a time when I thought I had considered the worst case scenario, which is we'll do this, we'll kind of take this risk, uh, spend about $70,000. I went to my wife, this was two years into me being a writer and having this business, and I said, this is the, this is the downside. We've got $70,000 in our bank account, we do this. The upside is, you know, we'll, we'll make 100 grand and, you know, pretty quickly. And, and she's like, okay, let's do it. That was not the worst case scenario. I found <laughs> Apparently, out. it could be a little worse. Worst case scenario was that everything would go, you know, way different than we thought, and we'd lose two hundred thousand dollars, and then get hit with a fifty thousand dollar tax bill that our CPA didn't anticipate. And and I and I was like, oh my god, what what am I going to do? You know? And you know, you figure it out. And 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 I remember going to my wife, and I, cr- I was crying. I was going, I'm sorry, I did this to us. And it was ego. It was me trying to, you know buy prestige and, and do something that I thought, you know, like when you succeed at one thing, uh, you kind of think you can succeed at anything, at least early on. That's yeah. what ego tells us. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I could do that. I know business. You yeah. know? <laughs> business. I'm a capital B. I'm a business guy. I got a blog. <laughs> I know things. And I totally failed because I was yeah. out of my depths. And um, I remember talking to my wife about it. And um, I said, I'm so sorry. She says, you know, in the past you know, two, almost three years, we've never had to worry about you taking care of us. Um, and, um, you know, so you'll figure it out. Just 
don't do this again. I said, no, no, I won't, Never. I promise. Yeah, I promise. Uh, and, you know, I, I just, like, it's not that you can't anticipate, like, like, that you can anticipate failure. You can. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was, like, at that moment, I realized um, it's not, like, risk can get you hurt. And the best thing that I can do as an entrepreneur, as a writer, as somebody who wants to be creating for a lifetime is make sure that I have things set up that worst case scenario, I can live to fight another day. I can live to write another book, create another thing, just keep going. Somebody uh, once criticized Walt Disney kind of at the pinnacle of his career. Well, you're just making movies to make money. He said, oh, no, no. We don't make movies to make money. We make money so that we can make more movies. I, I didn't know that was a Disney quote. I've been saying that since I, and I literally figured like, wait, why do I? Yeah. Like because I, I you know, it goes back to the the starving the people that I know that are real artists they're not starving they're doing well like why because I just kept thinking of projects that I wanted to do and yeah. projects took money I know. if you didn't want to you know be beholden to the man or whatever right. the narrative that we've told ourselves I, how true is that for you what's the like is it, it how and is this a a theme that in your book real artists adopt they make money to make art versus make art to make money. One of, the, one of my favorite people I talked to in this book, I interviewed basically like half the stories are contemporary artists, as I mentioned, the other half are like historical people, Picasso, Twyla Tharp, um, Michelangelo, and, and so on. Um, I talked to Alan Bean, who was the fourth man to walk on the moon, and he's a full-time fine artist today. And um, his story is basically he always kind of painted for fun, and uh, he gets to 50 years old, and we're not doing moon missions anymore. And he's looking around at NASA. This was in like the 80s, I think. Um, and he sees all these people who can do his job better than him. He goes, anybody can, anybody can fly the space shuttle. Anybody can do what I do. Uh, <laughs> but how many astronauts can paint the moon from firsthand experience? And the answer was nobody. Nobody could do it. Nobody else had been to the moon and could paint. And he told me, he goes, you know, I am a man. Because I, I said to him, I said, you know, like you like, quit your job to like chase your passion of art. He goes, hang on a second, Jeff. I'm a man, I'm a Navy man, and then I joined NASA. Like, I'm a man who's always done his duty. And the way I see it, because I, because I loved painting, and I was good at it, uh, and I'd been to the moon, I could do something. I could capture a part of human history that may never be captured again. Uh, I, I, thought it was my, I, I felt it was my duty to quit NASA and become a full-time artist. If you go to Alan Bean's website today, you can buy, you can buy paintings, huge paintings of... Uh, you know, his experiences on the moon, uh, and they're anywhere from fifty to four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> wow. Because he is the only guy who does that. But how cool is that? That's another great takeaway is that the answer for his art was in here. It's like what is yeah. what are the personal experiences? What makes me different, not just better? There are people. Yeah. What's his last name again? Alan Bean. Okay, Bean. There are people who are much better painters than Alan Bean. I haven't even seen the work. I just know because oh, yeah. there's some insane talent out there in the totally. world. But what he did is something different and something that was unique to him. Yep. He walked on the freaking moon. Yeah, you know what else he did? Uh, I, I love the story. It's just super <laughs> fun. And the point of it is not so that he could make a bunch of money. The point yeah. is he uh, can charge those prices because he's the only guy who's done it and he's using what, only he, you know, what he has. Uh, but he's making money so that he can make more art, and he's been doing this for 30 years now, uh, and he really considers it a duty, a calling. Like, this is his thing his that work, yeah. only he can do. 
but he had this sort of dilemma where he was going to art museums. He's like, I'm no Monet. I can't do what, what he can do. Goes, so what do I have? And he's literally sitting in his studio. And when you walk on the moon, as one does, they let you keep all this stuff. You keep the suit, the shovel, everything, all that stuff like in the corner of his room. And he looks at it and he goes, oh yeah, I can use that. And his, his suit was still caked in moon dust. And so if you buy an Alan Bean painting, it's only, it would only cost you $50,000, uh, every piece has a little piece of moon dust. Like he like picks a little moon dust off the suit and throws it <laughs> on the painting. So you're literally dust. buying a piece of the moon. So yeah, I mean like he's taking like what only he has and using it to his advantage and he's making money off of his art so that he can keep making art and keep doing his duty. I love it. I love it. So you have written a bunch of books. Hmm. You've talked about teaching writing. You're teaching a writing. That's one of the reasons you're in San Francisco. Yep. We're super lucky to have you on Creative Live. Tell us about it. So your class is called Surviving to Successful. Starving to Successful. S sorry. sorry. <laughs> that's how bad my eyes are. I think that's how bad Matt, uh, who, who wrote that? All right, your handwriting. Uh, starving to Successful. Um, how to become a full-time writer. Yeah. And is it in this class that you unpack a lot more of the detail? Or what, what, mm -hmm. what do folks... Yeah. What are going to get? Yeah, so you know, I'm taking this um, idea of not being a starving artist. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can be a starving artist in anything, in business, in your bakery shop, uh, and in your writing career. And as a writer, I have a lot of experience uh, with that. Um, and I just see a lot of writers who think they can't make money off of writing. I mean, it's something I hear authors say. Yeah. You can't make any money doing this. And I'm like, I'm making money doing this. Lots of my friends are making money doing this. Uh, you you can't suck and make money doing this, but like you can make money doing this. So yeah, um, the class is just uh, practically walking through what I call the writer's roadmap, which is a 12-step process uh, going from starting with your message to making $10,000 a month, which we sort of, like that's that's how I define making a living. Just about in any economy, that's, you know, a living wage, you know, good living, and um, it's possible. And uh, I work with thousands of clients and students every year, walking them through this process, and every year I see them doing this. And I, I think what's frustrating for me is sometimes seeing you know, online education, I, I, yeah. I, I think you're probably frustrated with this too, um, is you have a lot of fakers who like, yeah. had an, like had an experience once and they go, this is true for me so it must be true for you. And what is, has been fun for me doing this for about five years, now I'm six years, is um, walking with people seeing them achieve stuff that I've never achieved. Like I worked with this, this guy um, just over the past year and he grew his email list to 100,000 people in 12 months. Wow. And he goes, what should I do? I was like, yeah. I said, what do you want to do? He's like, I want to write books. I said, go get a freaking book deal, man. Yeah. He goes and gets a $220,000 book contract. My first book contract was for $6,000. <laughs> and I was, this is his first book. Yeah. And, and the next day I was talking to a writer and she says, well, you know, you can't, you can't make much money off of your first book. I was like, let me tell you a story. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it begins with this idea of mindset. You've got to want to win. You've yeah. got to discard the idea of the starving artist. But if you do the work, you're going to see the results. And so that's what we're teaching people is the stuff that I see thriving writers do every single day, every single year, and they succeed. Super happy to have you on the Creative Live platform. That's, you know, you talked about there's so much hokey pokey out there. Yeah. People have done it. That's why we curate the heck out of people who are on the platform. Super happy to have you back for your second class. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your journey on creating Real Artists Don't Starve, 
must read. I read it in two days. Wow, thank you. Yep. That's awesome. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's not just a tribute to your wisdom and brilliance in writing, but the research and the fact that now is uh, an incredible time to be a creator. We have more tools than ever before, yeah. all these accessed information to folks like you and the f people that you um, feature in the book. Congratulations, man. Thanks, Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.